Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. This episode takes us across the pond to Nottinghamshire in England, home of the Sherwood Forest and the legend of Robin Hood. The man who dressed in green from head to toe and robbed from the rich and gave to the poor. Sherwood Forest is a natural reserve of over a thousand acres. And it's a place where Robin and his merry men called home and hunted their prey. It's rather ironic that not far from Sherwood Forest, in the district of Mansfield, Susan Edwards felt the need to take from what she deemed were the rich and give to the poor herself. Her parents were William and Patricia Witcherly. Bill was a son of a coal miner and served in the Navy. The Guardian reported that he married Pat in 1958 when he was 46 and she was 23. They soon had Susan, their only child. Bill and Pat were what you'd call recluse. They never joined any clubs and didn't have any friends. They moved into a two-story duplex on the corner of Glenham Close, a neighborhood of identical homes, row after row, street after street. Their red brick exterior was accented with white trim. The bay window in the front looked out over a small patch of grass, and in the back, they enjoyed a garden. Their backyard was bordered with a tall hedge. Behind it were neighbors John and Leslie Ward. John trimmed his side of the hedge with a trimmer, but Bill preferred to use small scissors and snipped away for hours. John and Leslie liked to entertain and had barbecues and invited the neighbors, including Bill and Pat, but they never joined in. The couple preferred to be alone and spent all their time together, most of it inside their home. There, within its dark walls, their cigarette smoke stained the lace curtains a dingy yellow. When they did venture out for a walk, Bill's posture was upright, while thirty feet behind his wife Pat followed, dressed in a dark green raincoat. Not much is known about Susan's childhood. Court records indicated that, when she was twenty-one, she inherited ten thousand pounds from her grandfather on her mother's side. Susan's mother, Pat, believed the money should have been left to her. Susan tried to smooth things over by spending half of it taking her mother on a trip to Memphis to visit Graceland. Then she used the other half 
as a down payment on a home for her parents in Edgeware, North London, with her name included on the home's title. In her 20s, she worked as a librarian. Through a dating agency, she met Christopher Edwards. Susan's father didn't approve of Christopher, but that didn't stop them from getting married in 1983. Susan and Christopher settled in to Dagenham, a city in East London, 25 miles from her parents. In the working-class neighborhood, the couple rented a council flat on the top floor. After the wedding, Susan stopped working, and Christopher supported them with his job as a credit control officer. Initially, he liked to socialize, but Susan, much like her parents, preferred a solitary life. Around their neighbors, Christopher would share a few pleasantries, but Susan kept to herself with her head hung down. The couple didn't own a car or even a bike and walked or took the bus. Although Susan maintained a relationship with her parents, it was strained, and she didn't see them often. The distance between their homes provided the buffer the two couples needed. Then, in 1986, Susan's parents persuaded her to remove her name from the title on the house. Afterwards, they sold it for a profit of £25,000, which is about US dollars Susan was furious. First, she had been coerced into giving them £5,000 from her rightful inheritance, and now they cheated her again. It was a grudge that would simmer for years, bubbling away quietly just below the surface. Christopher and Susan shared an interest in the military, and as their marriage neared the 15-year mark, they began collecting stamps and autographs. When the deliveries arrived, Susan waited until the postman left before she opened the door. Collecting things became her passion, and she focused on leaders of the Second World War. It was something for her to do in those long, lonely hours while her husband was at work. The problem with their hobby is they couldn't afford it. Without outside contact, Susan made up her own world. In it, she wrote letters to French actor Gerard Depardo, who acted in The Man in the Iron Mask and Life of Pi. For 14 years, she faked letters between them. She even used a stamp on the envelope to convince Christopher the letters had been mailed from France. Their memorabilia collection expanded to include historic military books, the large expensive hardcover ones with glossy pages of photographs. They even bought a box set of Charles de Gaulle's memoirs. By 1998, their spending on World War II and Hollywood memorabilia had put them in serious debt. Christopher was 41 and still working, 
while Susan, at 39, hadn't worked in almost two decades. But that didn't curb Susan's spending, and her resentment towards her parents continued to grow. She and Christopher devised a plan to solve both issues. On the May long weekend, the couple traveled to Mansfield. Christopher belonged to a gun club and was experienced at shooting and brought along his military 38 revolver from World War II. Court records reveal that on Sunday, Christopher lifted the gun and aimed. At point-blank range, he fired two bullets into Bill, hitting him in the chest. Then he fired two bullets into Pat, hitting her in the spine. His aim was accurate and deadly. Bill was dead at 86. Pat was 63. They wrapped their bodies with duvet covers and dragged them to the basement. The couple went to bed and at 2 a.m. awoke. Christopher grabbed a shovel and went to the backyard. There, he dug a deep hole in the garden. They folded their bodies as they dropped them, one at a time, into the freshly dug grave, one body on top of the other. Mounds of dirt were shoveled on top of their bodies until the hole was filled. Then they planted shrubs to hide their grave. The next day, when the bank reopened, Susan opened a new account under her name and her mother's. Then she managed to close her parents' bank accounts and transferred their life savings of £40,000 into her account. Susan used 15000 of it to pay off their credit cards. Every three weeks, Susan and Bill traveled three hours by bus from their rented home in the city to her parents' home in Mansfield. They mowed the lawn, trimmed the bushes, and cleaned the windows and gutters. One time, Bill spotted the neighbor John outside in the yard and casually commented that Bill and Pat had gone to live in Morecambe, a small seaside town two hours away, and that they were loving the sea air. Susan attended to the mail. When there was an appointment reminder for a doctor or dentist, she would contact them with a plausible excuse as to why her parents could not attend. She even sent Christmas cards to a few relatives, sometimes pretending to be her parents, other times she wrote on their behalf. In one card, adorned by a Christmas tree and cozy fire, Susan wrote, We're all keeping quite well. You are right that my father was always one for the gypsy life. 
and she goes on to acknowledge a death in the family. I told father, but he has never mentioned it again, because it upsets him too much, I think. He was always the same, not one to wear his heart on his sleeve, and he's not going to change at this great age. Susan and Christopher had counted on no one missing her parents, and sadly, no one ever did. Bill and Pat's pension payments, disability benefits, and winter fuel allowances continued to come in, and Susan kept the money to fund their lifestyle. In October, Susan attempted to cancel her father's pension, but then discovered it could automatically be deposited into the bank, so she changed her mind. Christopher and Susan continued to buy memorabilia. They used the money that came in every month from Bill and Pat's pensions and benefits, and when that wasn't enough, Susan took out credit cards and loans in her mother's name. By 2005, Susan and Christopher were steep in debt again. Over seven years, they spent Bill and Pat's remaining £25,000. But then an event happened that would change the course of their future. In Mansfield, a woman living uphill from Bill and Pat's home parked her car, but forgot to set the handbrake, and it rolled, crashing into their fence, not far from Bill and Pat's grave. Susan and Christopher panicked. It was too close, and they couldn't risk involving an insurance company, so they paid to have the fence fixed quickly, but it made them realize that this was a close call. So they decided to sell the house and pay off their debts. Susan forged the necessary signatures and the house sold for a profit of £67,000. Susan continued to send relatives Christmas cards every year with an update on her parents' travels. Meanwhile, Susan and Christopher kept collecting. They became enthralled with Hollywood film stars and paid £3,000 for Gary Cooper's signature, £2,000 for a letter typed from him, and also spent money collecting Frank Sinatra's autograph. In 2012, the Department for Work and Pensions wrote a letter to Bill. Esquire magazine reported that it congratulated him on his upcoming 100-year birthday and requested an in-person meeting to assess his benefits. It had been 14 years since Bill died, so that definitely wasn't possible. Christopher stole £10,000 from his employer. The couple packed up their precious memorabilia and fled to Lille, France. It didn't take long before the money they had ran out. Then they discovered they couldn't access the money they'd left behind in England. The couple couldn't bear to part with their treasured memorabilia, so after nearly a year on the run, 
Christopher phoned his stepmother Elizabeth for help. During their conversation, he confessed that he and Susan had murdered Bill and Pat and that they were buried in the garden at their home. After hanging up the phone, Elizabeth called police. Detective Rob Griffin and his team wondered, could this really be true? A double murder and they're buried in the back garden? 15 years ago, and no one reported them missing? They attempted to contact Christopher via phone and email to no avail. So they resorted to old-fashioned detective work. They weren't able to locate even one family member on Pat's side, but managed to track down a few bills. And they recalled the Christmas cards, and some had kept them. They talked to the real estate agent who sold their home and discovered they never saw Bill or Pat in person. Then they discovered that the couple hadn't seen a doctor since 1998. All this provided Detective Griffin with what he needed for his team to start digging in the back garden. The excavation took two days. They used cadaver dogs and ground-penetrating radar, a forensic radiographer, anthropologist, archaeologist, and entomologist. And sure enough, when they dug down, they found the remains of Bill and Pat. A ballistic expert confirmed the murder weapon was a Second World War 38 revolver and both victims had been facing the gun when they were shot. But getting Susan and Christopher out of France and back to the UK wasn't going to be easy. The process would take months. But then in a surprise twist, on October 13, 2013, Christopher emailed Detective Griffin. The message was flagged as important, and the subject line read, Surrender. Christopher's email stated that later today, we are going to surrender ourselves to the UK Border Force Authorities and to please notify them so that they may expect us. Within two hours of the email being sent, Christopher and Susan were taken into police custody as they crossed back into the UK. All they had with them were a few worn-out suitcases full of memorabilia, worth only £3,000. Christopher had just £17 in his bank account. Investigators interviewed the couple over the years, they had rehearsed what they would say, should this day ever come. The Nottingham Post reported how in a cold and calm manner, they told the story of how Susan had gone to visit her parents and woke up Sunday morning to the sound of a gunshot and found her mother in the bedroom holding a gun and her father on the floor. 
She claimed her mother provoked her by saying that she had an affair with Christopher years earlier. So she grabbed the gun and shot her. Then, in a bizarre move, she claimed she hid their bodies. And that a week later, she phoned her husband to come to the house without telling him what happened. When he arrived, they ate fish and chips and watched television before she confessed to their murders. Afterwards, they dragged their bodies from the upstairs bedroom and buried them in the garden. Police didn't believe their version. The evidence didn't support it. The gunshots were expertly aimed, not a shot fired in a moment of anger. And Chris admitted to investigators that he was an experienced shooter. Had Christopher arrived a week after the murder, the smell of decomposition would have alerted him the moment he walked through the door. And Susan's Christmas cards and letters to family, pretending to be her parents, led police to believe their murders had been premeditated. Court records revealed that over 15 years, Susan and Christopher spent £242,000 worth about 320000 U.S. dollars. They were charged with murder, theft, and obstructing the coroner. Just before their trial, they pled guilty to the theft and obstruction, but maintained their innocence on the murder charge. At their trial in 2014, it took the jury just over six hours to find them guilty of murder. They each received a sentence of 25 years in prison before being eligible for parole. Being in their mid-50s, it is likely the last place they will reside. The mother and daughter who bought Bill and Pat's home still reside there today. She told the press, We've had a lot of happy times here. I've lived here all this time, and the Witcherleys have not done me any harm. They're not going to do me any harm now. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Wilbur Martinez Guzman. He was 16 when he arrived in the U.S. with his mother. He spent three years trying to start a new life. A Nevada couple hired him for odd jobs, and he repaid them by taking their lives. But they weren't his first victims. If you're dying to hear more, Past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, 
and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.